Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's the Wonky Show. We chat about the different cost of degrees. We talk about the TEF and what UK students think about the finances of their universities. It's all coming up. You don't just pay for your course. And I think it's broadening the understanding of where that money is being invested into the university. I think people underestimate students' ability to sort of take the truth, as it were. And I think if, if people were transparent about where money was being spent and how higher education is funded... Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into higher education policy, people and politics. Rachel is away this week, so unfortunately uh, you've got me, Jim Dickinson, but don't worry, because here to climb the hit parade of higher education policy, as usual, we have three awesome guests. In Cheltenham, we have Andy Yule, higher education data specialist. Andy, your highlight of the week, please. Uh, I'm not sure how I feel about this, but it's my birthday in a couple of days' time, and it's quite a significant one. (laughs) And you're not going to say which one? (laughs) It's It's an an important time when a man turns 30. It's statistically significant. Uh, uh, in Bath, we have Eve Alcock, president of the University of Bath Student Union. Eve, your highlight, please. Uh, I went to the cinema this week to see On the Basis of Sex about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and it was phenomenal. Excellent. And uh, in Wonky HQ this week, we have Wonky's editor, Debbie McVitie. Debbie, your highlight of the week, please. Uh, my highlight is yet to come because I'm looking forward to catching up with some old friends from uh, my old job at the University of Bedfordshire. So that's going to be really fun. Fabulous. Right, this week we kick off with a new report from the Institute of Fiscal Studies, or IFS, called Where is the Money Going? Estimating Government Spending on Different University Degrees. Uh, The report finds that the current system of funding undergraduate education is unevenly spread, with the cost to government highest for subjects where graduates earn the least and lowest for subjects where they earn the most. Debbie, can you uh, elaborate for us? So the the origin of this question really was in the Office of National Statistics ruling before Christmas that the government write-off for student loans should be reflected in government accounts, not as an asset, um, but as an expenditure. So suddenly the cost of the system is coming under a great deal more scrutiny. So of course, the, the next question is, well, where is the government spending most of its money or, you know, the government, the taxpayer? Um, and the answer, which kind of everyone knows, but the IFS has sort of set out in some detail, is that, of course, the government is spending money on the courses that have the lowest salary returns because given that most courses cost the same, the subsidy will come where graduates don't necessarily earn enough after graduation to repay the, you know, to repay the, uh, the bulk of, of their loan. Um, and the issue as it's framed in the report is that the government kind of lacks control of public spending because the system is driven by the choices of students, um, not all of whom, of course, will choose subjects that, that, that gain sufficient returns in, returns in government terms to, to, uh, for government to be able to recoup the cost of, of their investment. Um, there's some issues, of course, with this with this framing. One is that, of course, for students, I mean, the, the system is designed around student choice. That's really a feature of the system, not a bug. Um, and it's hard to know what the alternative would be because you, you end up saying things like, well, we have to constrain the numbers of students in degrees that don't necessarily pay sufficient 
salary returns. Um, so you end up saying, well, only a small proportion of people can do creative arts because we don't think you're going to earn enough in the future to pay sufficient amount of taxes to, for, for us to be able to, for the whole system to be affordable, which uh, becomes really, really problematic because who do you say can do it and who do you say can't do it and, and how do you stop universities from offering it and so on and so forth. Um, and of course, if you, if you plan the system in that way in a similar, more central way, there's really important questions about whether you actually end up with the right mix of skills in the economy to, to meet future skills needs. Um, and that is a genuinely legitimate question. We can't necessarily predict in 20 years' time what the skills needs are going to be. Um, so student choice is quite an effective way, actually, of, of, of running a system. Um, there's issues with the data um, in the sense that all of this is based on salary returns of graduates in the last 10 years. So we're predicting what the salary returns might be in the future on the basis of data from the past. Um, and of course, given the speed at which the economy changes and which labour market changes, uh, it's really questionable about whether you can make meaningful policy predictions um, on the basis that uh, everything will be the same as it was in the last 20 years. Um, and if you look at uh, trend, mega trends like automation and digitisation and that sort of thing, it's, it's not really kind of arguably reasonable to do that. And of course, the, the fourth issue is, on, is uh, the third issue is about university funding. Um, and there's been a, a sort of flurry of, of, of reports in, in the area of cross-subsidy, which is a very wonkish thing, but, but it's genuinely quite interesting. So HEPI estimated last year that on UK student teaching as a whole, so you know, covering all the different subjects, uh, universities just about break even on that. So what's actually happening is, is that courses for which uh, it, it costs slightly less to teach, uh, there's a little bit of subsidy is going into the courses that cost slightly more to teach. So if someone's studying philosophy, some of their fees probably going to top up the cost of someone else who's studying engineering. Um, and that's fine because it's all equitable. Students are all paying the same. And of course, they're getting more than just the teaching. They're getting the whole, the whole wraparound student experience um, and all the, all the academic support and the access to the library and all the rest of it. Um, universities uh, break even on UK student teaching. They make a small surplus on international teaching. Um, and that surplus has value because it can be put towards uh, research for which it's quite hard to recoup the full economic cost if you're a university. Um, and it can also be put into investment in the future. So if you want to buy, um, if you want to make a, make a big capital investment, um, build new buildings, uh, invest in the student experience, then you need to be able to borrow money and, and you need to be able to kind of have a small surplus to be able to service that debt. So what there isn't really is um, any additional money floating about in universities to, to do things like pay for the privilege of teaching courses that have low salary returns, which is one of the recommendations the IFS brings. Um, and what you would then create if you said, right, well, you, 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 have, you have to kind of only... only Bring in the amount, you can only borrow the amount of money that it costs to deliver the subject in order to protect taxpayers' money. You then create risks to the delivery of subjects, and often, in, in a lot of cases, the subjects that you kind of you most want to make sure are are, are um, available in the in the in the economy. Andy, I, I guess that uh, I mean one of the things that lots of people have raised. Debbie, Debbie mentioned it there is this idea that you know the system is demand led and that. Uh, the aggregate choices of 18-year-olds are kind of driving things. But um, that's not actually strictly true, is it? Because uh, some institutions have expanded uh, where they are able to and where they've chosen to. And presumably lots of institutions have chosen to expand their cheaper-to-teach courses. I, I, I think that's true. And, and you know, one, one of the, the upsides of, of the removal of student number control is that institutions uh, arguably have a lot more freedom uh, to develop and grow in, in, in areas that, that they think there is value in doing. I think one of the very interesting things about this report is is that it, it in a sense, it kind of sets out a very powerful argument for a return to a central grant allocation model, or if not that, certainly a very detailed and draconian centrally defined student number control. Um, and, you know, for, for, for many reasons in terms of the direction of, of other HE policy, um, you know, I, I think that would be very much going going against the flow. So there's a real tension here, isn't there, in, 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 in policy? You know, the government wants to open up the market, give 
institutions more freedom, uh, you know, to grow and 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 take off the uh, the control on on student numbers. But the kind of downside on that is that um, you know you you therefore have to accept what the institutions are going to do. The other point about this, and and something that I I feel quite passionately about, um, is the idea that you know once again this report really focuses the debate on um, uh, the return of higher education in terms of a very simple measure of salary. Um, and it, it doesn't, I think, you know, do do justice to uh, the real value of, of higher education in its in its broadest sense and the value of the arts uh, and humanities to society um, and what that does uh, for us as a nation. Uh, and, you know, we are we are world leaders in the creative arts, for God's sake. Um, and so, you know, this this continual focus on on, you know, the only measure of, of, of HE success is, is how much you earn. Uh, I, I, I think it's it's actually a very sad path to go down. Eve, obviously we've ended up with a system, and, and I guess these figures uh, kind of lay it bare, where there's a bunch of students who are borrowing uh, £9,250, uh, where their course costs significantly more than that to teach, and a bunch of students who borrow exactly the same amount for, for whom their course costs significantly less to teach. Do you get a sense that students know the, 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 the kind of big differences and do you get a sense that if they did know, they'd be comfortable? It's tricky, isn't it? One of our, one of our top 10 issues at, um, at Bath is, let, is increasing the knowledge for students around where their fees are being spent. I think we need to move away from um, higher education being this very sort of transactional consumer focused culture, though, though it is essentially you're paying X amount per year for your degree. But um, as Debbie alluded to, you're not you don't just pay for your course and I think it's broadening the understanding of where that money is being invested into the university I think people underestimate students ability to sort of take the truth as it were and I think if if people were transparent about where money was being spent and how higher education is funded I only see it as a positive thing because I think students would understand basically yes I think one of the things. Um, there was quite an interesting report last week from the Financial Sustainability Strategy Group. Um, and one of the things it called for was a mature conversation w- w- among students and staff um, and universities about where the money goes um, and, and how universities are funded. Um, and of course, there was some happy pulling out today that said that uh, students would kind of l- would like to know quite a bit more about uh, where the money is coming from um, and what their universities are spending on and, and also whether their universities are in financial difficulty. So uh, I suppose uh, there's a kind of space here for us to say, let's uh, let's trust each other to have mature conversations about um, how we're kind of funding our, our university system and, um, and, 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 and what's sort of being got for that that isn't just about, well, I pay this in and, and I take this out. Because of course, student fees go towards all kinds of things, including supporting access for other students. And, um, you know, I have, I have a degree of confidence that a lot of students would say, well, that's exactly how it should be. Um, if I'm, you know, if I'm, if if I make money in the future, then that is then you know my, my, my paying back goes to help other people who um, who now have the same opportunities that I do, and and that's exactly how it should be. Good. Let's see who's been blogging for us then this week. Head of Student Support at the University of Stirling, and I'm leading the delivery of a holistic strategy to prevent and tackle gender-based violence. Developed in partnership with our Students' Union and a range of local and national partners, it aims to create a culture where gender-based and sexual violence are not tolerated. Staff and students feel comfortable to report gender-based violence, and our community is confident in how to support anyone who's been affected. We have created an interactive staff training programme, a new network of 16 trained sexual violence and misconduct liaison officers, a comprehensive website and a multiple award-winning campaign, Is This Okay? 
which aims to challenge inappropriate behaviours relating to sexual and gender-based violence. So far, we've trained over 400 staff and the training has evaluated extremely well. The SVMLOs have already supported students who have reported sexual violence and we see an increase in reports as an indicator of success and culture change as we know sexual and gender-based violence are severely underreported across society, not just in universities. Hi, I'm Neil McKenzie. I'm the Head of Advice and Representation at Sheffield Students' Union. I've written a piece for Wonky this week uh, discussing my views on resilience in the context of higher education. Our students are so often criticised for lacking it. Universities and schools are encouraged to ensure that students have it. But resilience is a concept that I've always found quite problematic. I think the concept is blind to privilege, structural inequality, and it's based on a really deeply individualistic view of the world. I think we can consider how we can create resilient communities on our campuses, benefit our students collectively, and maybe, just maybe, provide them with the resilience to face the uncertainties of our future and come up with some different solutions. I am Anthony Selden from the University of Buckingham, and I believe that mindfulness has a really important role to play in helping our universities, our staff and our students. So, very quickly, a definition from John Kabat-Zinn, who is the leader of uh, mindfulness at the um, medical school at the University of Massachusetts. And he says, mindfulness means paying attention in a particular way, on purpose, in the present moment, and non-judgmentally. I think that the evidence points to five possible benefits of mindfulness. Firstly, on mental health of students and staff, that mindfulness is the very grounding of what it means to be uh, healthy uh, mentally with an ability to be able to choose, to not uh, react to be calm and in control, to sleep well, and to live a life in accordance with one's values. Now, next up, the Teaching Excellence and Student Outcomes Framework, or TEF, as it is. It says here, fondly known. I, I, <laughs> I don't know what Rachel was thinking when she was writing this. Uh, the 1st of March was the deadline for submission to the independent review of the TEF, led by Dame Shirley Pierce. And following on from this, uh, we've seen this week a number of interesting comments and interventions as people have sought to publicise their own response. Andy, tell us more. So, if you're listening to this podcast, you know what the TEF is, and you will know a lot of the background to it. <laughs> Um, because, because you Unless do. you've tumbled onto this by accident. That's right. <laughs> um, so, obviously, you know, the, the, the review was uh, the deal, the compromise in the 2017 Act um, about the linking of, of TEF to student fees. And, and we shouldn't, I think, forget the significance of uh, what might come out of this review in terms of... Um, uh, future funding arrangements. Um, so yes, it's been it's been a very interesting uh, few days in terms of of the TEF. We've had the UUK uh, submission. Um, the Russell Group, I think, were were perhaps a little more forthright than the UUK. They they explicitly called for the subject uh, TEF element to uh, to be stopped. I think the UUK submission was a little bit more on on the fence about that. Um, for me, the big news about this, I mean, perhaps not surprisingly, given my my background, but for me, the really big news. Uh, this week has been the response of the Royal Statistical Society. Um, if you've been following the TEF story closely, you will know that the Royal Statistical Society uh, has uh, 
been fairly critical of uh, some of the technical elements, the statistical elements of, of the TEF, um, and has consistently raised uh, some fairly significant concerns about the validity uh, of the statistical work that is being undertaken. Uh, they have published responses uh, to previous consultations where they have said some uh, some fairly difficult things, uh, some fairly difficult politically things, but also actually some sort of big sums and numbers and fairly difficult things in that respect. Um, what they have done this week, I think, is is in some ways a bit of a game changer. They have uh, they have made a response to the first of March deadline uh, to the Pierce review, and they and they have published that. They have reiterated many of their concerns. But what they have also done this week uh, is they have called for um, the Director General uh, of. Uh, the UK Statistics Authority, the regulator of official statistics, to uh, take a view um, on the validity of the statistics in the TEF or not. Uh, and I think there's a sense in which they've kind of pressed the nuclear button now with this because, uh, you know, the Royal Statistical Society, these are not um, a fly-by-night bunch of people. They are statisticians. They are indeed royal statisticians. Um, and so they are not going to say something and, and do something like this without giving it uh, very uh, careful consideration. Uh, the OFS uh, last year signed up to the National Statistics Code of Practice, uh, something that, pre that the predecessor organisation, HEFC, never did. Um, and I think it's right the OFS did sign up to that code of practice, given uh, the prominence of data and statistics in the whole regulatory framework. So the OFS have submitted themselves uh, to uh, the, the, the domain of the regulator of uh, UK statistics. Andy, there's a bit of a hostage to fortune situation here, but can you give us a sense of some of the things they're actually critiquing? So is it the way the data is collected or the behaviours it generates? I mean, what are their, what's their beef? Uh, so they have a number of beefs. Um, some of them, I, as, as somebody who is not a trained statistician, I, I, I struggle to understand myself. The key issues are firstly the idea that um, the statistics that they are measuring are not uh, a reliable indicator of quality, uh, and that is a debate that has been prominent throughout uh, this uh, the whole TEF exercise. Uh, there are issues about the extent to which uh, the way it has been set up, it is open to gaming, um, and uh, I think there is an issue there. Um, the more um, technical issues are around uh, sample sizes and the extent to which with larger sample sizes, larger amounts of data for larger institutions, you are more likely to get false results, uh, false false positive results in, in some of the indicators. Um, and uh, that, that I, I, I would suggest uh, googling a few scholarly articles on on, on, on some of this um, they are they are all valid statistical points um, and I guess for me the key thing is is it's it's actually not what is being said but it's who's saying it De Debbie the, the thing about this is so uh, sure Tef uses proxies and sure it's open to gaming but isn't that just what happens when you use metrics in education so is it isn't there a danger here I'm not saying this is a uh, a, a miserable danger from everyone's point of view. But isn't there a danger here that actually what they're doing isn't really critiquing TEF? They're kind of critiquing almost the entirety of Michael Barber's career. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, I think it comes back to uh, what, you know, putting limits on what you can reasonably say using data. So um, the, the intention of the TEF uh, was originally, back, you know, back in the day when it was a twinkle in Joe Johnson's eye, was to um, enable effective differentiation between institutions in order to inform student choice. 
you know, it is it is one thing to say, you know, X institution um, has a, you know has this kind of retention statistic, and, and, and another institution has has a different one, um, and to say, and obviously there's context that we should take into account in in kind of understanding why that's going on, as you know, as Hisa has done for years, and saying. Ah well, and and this is now contributing towards a, a judgment which we expect to inform, and um, which we expect you know on, on which we expect students to base the choices that were going to affect their lives for you know for many years to come, and and this and this is where I think you know I think the TEF has 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 basically sort of overreached itself in in, in its aspirations. Um, there's also I think a question about what's left when you strip out some of that stuff. So I think one of the things we know is that at the minute students actually aren't using the TEF to drive choice. Um, they're you know of the of the students that uh, are, are are aware of it, it's it's because the institutions that they're interested in have been banging on about their amazing TEF scores. So it's not that students are kind of making finely grained decisions based based on TEF at the minute. Um, but there's also the question about. Um, if, if we, you know, if, if we stripped out some of this, some of the kind of idea about comparability and benchmarking, you would be left with absolute scores, which would, which would be, I think, very unfair, um, because you really just can't compare one sort of institution um, that's doing one sort of thing um, uh, and, and serving one sort of student with, with another that's kind of trying to do something rather different, um, and, and that's and that's fundamentally, um, it would it would no longer it would no longer be appropriate. Um, so you've got you've got a problem there, you know, if it's not supporting student choice. But the 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 kind of the thing that I think the sector is quite interested in and would like to kind of carry on the conversation about is how do you raise the the standard and profile and value of teaching in universities. Um, and I think, I mean, the conclusion that we seem to be a little bit of a head of steam seems to be building up behind is is that a you know a big kind of enormous uh, exercise to benchmark student outcomes and, and try and you know it, it create co comparability and 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 that you know that the TEF has become the sort of monster isn't isn't really the best way to do that but what would be sad would be if if we sort of said well the TEF isn't working but let's let's not let's stop talking about teaching because it is it is really important it's it's what students care about and it's and it's and it's doing really important stuff Eve can I ask you a question so you, you can probably imagine well no you can probably think of um a little bit of Bath somewhere whose outcomes are terrible and they're not justified by that's just the sort of subject it is or do you know what I mean? So last, you know, last summer the NSS results will have come out and you'll have spotted a couple of pockets of really poor uh, either assessment and feedback or, um, you know, teaching. In those moments, presumably you're thinking, do you know what these proxies will do because we can then go and sort of, you know, push some buttons and try and get some improvement? Yeah, I, I think there is an element of that. But I suppose when I saw this story, a massive part of me, so one of the issues being that the idea that the stats that are measured aren't reliable indicators of quality, my initial reaction was, we've always been saying this, students and students unions around the country have always been saying this, because it's based on the assumption that teaching quality is measured by how well you do or how soon you're in employment. So for example, at Bath, that doesn't make any sense because 60% of our students do placement years and a lot of their first graduate jobs, they actually get offered whilst they're on their placement year. It's no indication of, of teaching. And uh, the with students, I think it's always so subjective. The way that one particular lecturer on a particular course teaches might work brilliantly for a selection of students, but it's not going to work for absolutely everyone. It completely ignores the diversity within the student body. And, you know, what would it look like? And I'm not suggesting this is a good idea, but what would it look like if actually teaching quality took into account um, a student's ability to think for themselves and critique ideas and have confidence and, you know, self-belief and and that kind of teaching quality as opposed to just whether or not they're in employment however long after 
after university. I think you're wrong, Eve. I think that's an excellent yeah. idea. <laughs> well, it's it's dangerous though, isn't it? Because I suppose you've got is it the LEO survey that's putting in subjective well-being questions? Like how happy are our graduates? Oh, the, um, the Delhi, yeah, destination of yeah, believers. Yeah, um, I mean, y- yes, you are, but I think it's it's really interesting to to. I think I suppose the the question there is is to what extent is is subjective well being attributable to your higher education qualification? You know, yes, and, no, exactly. So that's an issue. Yeah, so. but I mean, it is. I think it is a genuine effort to try and um, try and kind of present a more rounded picture of graduate outcomes because, of course, you. One of the things that higher education does is it, it, it gives you it gives you more choices in your life. It gives you more power to control your life. Um, and the kind of the alignment of that with your well-being, I think, is is, is a quite important thing to draw out. But I mean, yeah, it's, it's experimental and it's new and, and it's and it's going to be misrepresented, which, of course, is, is the other big data story in higher education is, is that these things get picked up and kind of run with and, and, and not contextualized and not thought about. Andy, there's another question here, I think, that I'm going to put for you. Over in further education, there will be a bunch of apprenticeships that are inspected by Ofsted with all of the things that we understand that to mean. And then there are some degree level apprenticeships that where the, the, the kind of quality regime is very, very different and includes things like, you know, TEF and subject TEF. Do you think that can survive that kind of, you know, that, that fundamentally different approach in, in what Orga may be trying to craft to be a, a kind of single tertiary system? Uh, so I, I, I think what you're therefore asking is a broader and actually quite different questions because it's well no, but it is it's it, it, it's absolutely right to ask it because there, there were the, the, the history of of the TEF largely comes out of a conversation about uh, quality assurance in higher education and a push back against uh, what was seen as a very intrusive uh, quality assurance process and therefore uh, the government decided to to let the data provide the answer and so you know you, you absolutely get in, in, into the, the more philosophical questions about you know is data a good uh, indicator for quality can it be a good indicator for quality um he has has taken this route fe is still in uh, the, the the space of having uh, regular ofsted inspections um I wonder if there is a sense of uh, the pendulum swinging about this, um, and yeah, you know, with 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 Orga yet to report, whenever that is is going to report, there is a sense in which we kind of have to just accept that all bets are are, are off now. Terrific, and look, uh, there uh, lots of people won't have seen this, but I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Anthony McLaren, who of course used to run the Quality Assurance Agency. Uh, who now runs Texa over in uh, Australia has written recently on the kind of history of the uh, the UK quality wars and some of the kind of background and context. So if you want to have a look uh, at that, take a look at their show notes on wonky.com. Now, next up, every week this season, as you know, we delve deep into the sector's past to uncover stories of how things were and how things came to be with Nottingham Trent's academic registrar, Mike Ratcliffe. Here's part nine of the hidden history of HE. <laughs> So Oxford and Cambridge have now got these colleges nearby which are educating people in the same curriculum but they are not members of the university. So they've got this kind of beginning of a mingling because Oxford and Cambridge is full of independent colleges so you could put a women's college in either of those two cities and it can educate people to the same thing. They can go, eventually they're allowed access to the same lectures um, but they have to work out what to do. So. Um, the Cambridge uh, solution, which comes after a lot of agitation from uh, progressive uh, academic staff to say, well, we should have women as members of the university, but a lot of reaction from uh, 
what you have to call the reactionary clergy, who are all members of the university and have the right to vote on any university statute, who can come back by train to vote down any clauses that might look like um, that uh, women might be allowed in. And there's a big celebration when they vote down the clause that women should be admitted to the university. They have a, there's a great picture of it of um, a huge throng outside King's College and men celebrating the fact that they've kept women out of the university. They have a, an effigy of a woman on a bike. Uh, she's wearing bloomers because they're worried that women are going to be riding around Cambridge in their bloomers. The whole place is going to change. And they get so excitable uh, that they go out to one of the women's colleges and rattle the gates so violently that women are scared inside that the, the, the you know, violence is going to be done to them. So they get very overexcited. So what they end up with is this wonderful if you're part of this internal thing compromise whereby the women can take the exams continue to take the exams and they can be admitted as students um, but they can't become members of the university by getting the degree so they get to know how well they did in the exam but they don't get the BA or MA degree and they're not allowed to do that now unfortunately because Cambridge has this big reaction against it um, they don't try uh, during the interwar years to overturn it or that it gets put back so it's only in 1948 that the University of Cambridge admits its first woman graduate, who is an honorary graduate. The, um, Queen Elizabeth uh, is admitted as the, as the first uh, woman graduate of the University of Cambridge. So a huge amount of, of tussle about this. So Cambridge has a very strict list system in terms of its thing. So women knew that they were best in their year at the subject, but didn't get the degree. So obviously, uh, things are much, much better now. Everything is solved. Uh, there's no problems at all. Uh, and that's all fine. There's a, obviously a series of gradations about uh, Oxford colleges becoming mixed, um, about uh, the ability of women to become academic staff. You know, so we better and better and better. But if you think how many, you know, we're, we're dealing with a generation that was alive in 1948. This is a generation that women could not graduate at all. You know one of our universities until after that point. Now, next up, the Higher Education Policy Institute, or HEPI, as it's more widely known, has conducted research with over a 1,000 full-time undergrads to find out what UK students think about the financial health of their university. Eve, tell us more. So, for brief context, um, the OFS have made it abundantly clear that they're not going to be like HEPI when it comes to helping institutions on the verge of bankruptcy. So, we've seen stories of um, lots of universities, well, not lots, but a few universities in trouble, but lots of stories about that in the news. And most recently, that I think it was the University of Surrey have opened an all-staff voluntary redundancy scheme due to the need to make um, I think it's about £15 million of savings. Um, so it's a hot topic but um, this report uh, outlines student views on it. So the report overall suggests that the general trend is students are sort of optimistically ignorant, should we say, of the financial stability of their own institutions um, and that their views, appear, their views appear to directly contradict current policy on the topic. So some headline statistics, 83% of the students polled said uh, that they're confident in their institution's financial position. So from this, I wondered how students could be confident at all with the level of information that universities put out about their finances and the stuff that does get put out is, you know, in financial statements and things, it's quite impenetrable and it's difficult to really tell from them. Um, and from what the financial statements say, I'd say as a sabbatical officer, we see slightly different um, viewpoint because we go into meetings and we're asking for funding on something or we sit on finance committee and things aren't as sort of shiny as perhaps the like nicely bound financial statements might always suggest. 97% um, of students, so nearly everybody asked, would want to know if their university was in financial trouble, um, which puts, I suppose, 
that's against what the RFS would probably suggest because you don't want to name and shame um, universities because it makes recruitment worse. And particularly as I think it was 84% of students said they'd be less likely to apply to their uni if they knew it was a financial trouble anyway. So there's a big discrepancy there. Um, 71% of the students believe that the government should step in um, if the university was in financial trouble. And again, that's what uh, goes against what we're hearing from the OFS about um, their approach. So I suppose the question becomes, what should institutions do with this data, do, do about these findings? Um, student protection plans are the device that should be protecting students in the event of either institutional collapse or indeed course closure. Um, so making sure that those are robust and sort of up to date is imperative. But 89% of the respondents don't know what student protection plans are. And even more, 93% haven't seen their university's one. So I decided to go on Bath's website and look up our student protection plan and it is on the website so already better than some other universities um, but it does say we will publicize the student protection plan in partnership with the students union and in partnership with the SU we will brief your academic reps on the key elements of it and ask them to cascade this information to the rest of your that is cohort. Not the first you've heard of it. <laughs> yes. Um, it also says that the student protection plan should go through one of our subcommittees of council and senate. So we've got one called Council Senate Students Union. Um, apparently it gets renewed at there every year. And I asked some of our SU staff this morning and I don't think that's happened at all in recent years. It often sort of gets rushed over to us um, and we, we sort of cast an eye over it. But it's always quite um, late on in the game and there's no real partnership or consultation on it. So, yeah. That's the situation. Debbie, I guess the, 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 the student protection plan thing is really important if it's the case that we think some institutions are going to go under or are really close. Mm. But I'm, I'm not sure we do know, do we? Well, the, the, the flimsiness of student protection plans is, um, is, is, sort of, is, pretty, is pretty well understood. Um, and the kind of, I guess, you know, the kind of fiction that universities would be able to kind of organise a seamless transfer for their students to um, IAN or their institution that would be you know, of, of equal kind of uh, value to the student. Um, is yeah sort of con continues to be the basis on which we kind of make these claims but i do think that there is a uh, we are not interrogating the notion of financial trouble sufficiently so i think this idea that you know oh well we, we know an institution's in financial trouble and 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 uh, because it's got massive loans, um, it's servicing a lot of debt, or because it's got a, um, a voluntary redundancy scheme open, or be you know because uh, you know the, the rumor is that they're not doing so well, um, isn't is often not really sufficient uh, to say that an institution is in financial trouble. Because, um, for example, I mean, ha having lots of debt is fine if you have the um, ability to service it and, 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 and you're, sort of, you're, you're confident about future income. Um, having a VR scheme on the go could, could mean, and while, you know, while that's really challenging for the universities that are going through that process, it could mean that the university is taking steps to differentiate itself um, and, and offer different courses and offer things in a different way. That will mean it will be financially secure for the future. Um, and actually, universities, I think, that are in financial trouble are the ones that are, uh, where, where you're not sort of seeing enormous uh, VR schemes. You're not seeing kind of big, big headlines about debt. You're seeing um, little things chipping away, little um, services just kind of being quietly retired, things being moved back. Um, and what you've got there is a university that's, that's desperately trying to kind of um, balance its books year on year um, with a kind of gently declining uh, student number and, and, no, and no kind of obvious strategy for, for changing that. And those are the ones that aren't going to be making the headlines. Andy, do you think it is true that if a university said, look, we are in financial trouble, that that would cause the sort of run on the bank collapsing applications that is invoked as the reason why some of the interventions from OFS are kept confidential? My gut feeling is it probably is. Uh, I don't think there's any sort of hard research anyone can quote on this. But 
with the higher education proposition now pitched so much as a financial investment uh, in young people's future, um, you know, you're not going to make that huge investment it, 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 with an organization that you think is in danger of, of some kind of um, financial calamity. Uh, so I, I, although there's, there's no hard evidence to, 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 to back this up, my, my gut feeling very strongly is, is, is that it would. Um, and I think that is the general consensus view. That's certainly the way it has always been uh, approached. One does not, um, um, you know, make, make public, uh, some of the things that, uh, that go on in the background. I mean, FC used to do an awful lot in the background under the radar, uh, to, to help and support, uh, institutions as they, as they navigated through, through their difficulties. And actually just picking up on, on one of the points that Debbie made, you know, the idea that, you know, the existence of a voluntary redundancy scheme could in some cases be seen as a very positive thing because it is an organization that is, taking positive, yes, very difficult, but very positive action to address uh, its problems. I found it interesting that the HEPI report, um, the sample is just over a thousand full-time undergraduate students. And there's quite a lot of majority statistics in it that make it look like this is a really overwhelming, decisive view of students. But to have quite a homogenous group of full-time undergraduates was interesting to me because full-time undergraduates are going to be largely at university, maybe three years average, which you might take the financial position of your institution into account more if you know you're going to be there for a considerable amount of time. Whereas if you look at PGTs, um, certainly at Bath, the PGT market is where they're wanting to sort of expand. Perhaps being there for a year, you might not, you might presume that perhaps actually that financial uh, stability of the institution won't affect you so much because it's just 12 months, you're in, you're out and you're gone. Um, and I'd be interested to see the breakdown with international and home students as well. Now it's quiz time. Here to set this week's correlation question is Wonky's Associate Editor, David Kerner. Welcome to Yes, But Does It Correlate? The podcast segment that's consistently more statistically reliable than the Office for Students' use of the concept of explained gaps. This week has given me another excuse to dive back into the amazing HESA staff dataset, and I've plotted the percentage of 2016-17 academic staff that left an institution against the percentage of 2017-18 staff that joined an institution. You'd think there'd be a slow growth in staff numbers all round, right? Yes, but does it correlate? So look, there, there's always going to be churn in, in, in the sector, and you know we've we've spoken already about the idea that you know universities will continually be looking at their their offering, um, moving out of subject areas, moving into new subject areas. Uh, so you know that this 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 I guess at a sector level at least uh, is very much the, the the ebb and flow and and the the evolution of 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 AG. Um, I think it is probably a, a much more interesting question to look at it um, at the individual institutional level. Yes, Andy, but do the two correlate? <laughs> yes, I think they probably do. Yeah, I think they probably do as well. But I thought the same thing. I thought it would be interesting to see whether there was the causation in there. But that's just me. GCC science drilled into my brain. Just because there's correlation doesn't mean there's cause. Ah, uh, no. R squared is 0.13, meaning we can wave a fond farewell to any idea of a sector-wide trend. The graph, as always, is on the show pages on the site. It's well worth a look. I've removed one anomaly where the data appears to be incorrect. As always, this is just the institutions included in the HESA dataset. Where the data doesn't exist, I've not plotted it. See you next time. 
And finally, a survey of almost 40,000 students from 140 universities conducted by the Insight Network, and they put a box of stuff in your halls for dig in, shows a rise in students with mental illness, with one-fifth of students being diagnosed with a mental illness in 2018. Debbie, can you share a bit more of the survey? Um, well, yeah, this is this is an enormous survey, and um, it's sort of uh, it's it's amazing that we've not been able to kind of muster the resources um, kind of within the sector sector to to run, to run something like this. But um, the findings are that um, about a fifth of students have a current mental health diagnosis, which means that they have been formally diagnosed by a medical professional um, with 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 a mental health issue, um, predominantly um, anxiety or depression depression disorders. But of course, you know, it could be the the, the full gamut of mental health issues, um, and. Uh, a third have experienced a serious psychological issue for which they felt they needed professional help. So that could be a sort of um, intermittent uh, periods of, of poor mental health, uh, which can, which you know, you know and, and, and each of these issues can, of course, affect anybody in the population. Um, you know, the the challenge here is, 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 you know, the sheer the sheer scale. I think is quite. Uh, and, and of course, when mental health practitioners who work in universities, you know, may not be surprised by these findings, but the the you know the, the, the sheer numbers of students kind of um, coping with uh, mental health challenges uh, is 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 quite sort of. Um, Surprising, I guess. Eve, one of the things that happened yesterday afternoon is uh, a press release came in from DfE announcing a, a student mental health task force that Chris Skidmore was convening uh, that, would, that's, that is focused fairly tightly on transitions, transitions to university and so on and so on. Is that the answer? I don't think it's the answer. I think it's probably a welcome development, especially somewhere like Bath, where entrance grades can be very, very high. What you see is um, a lot of students feel um, they've gone from their sixth form college, where they've gone from being sort of big, big fish, small pond, um, very, very good academically. And then they come to university where suddenly everybody is very, very good academically and you feel really average. And there's a real issue, I think, um, and I'm sure it's not exclusive to Bath, with um, perfectionism and not and not feeling comfortable with failure but i think with mental health there's there's two things here there's the reactive side of what universities need to be doing to support people who are already suffering or already at crisis point and that is you know comes back to what i hear from students about counseling wait times and the fact that you only get six weeks of counseling and then you're sort of left on your own again and then it there's the proactive stuff which is how are we creating an environment at university that facilitates positive uh, mental health and well-being that is protective of getting to that crisis point and unfortunately no matter how much universities are trying to do the proactive and you know let's have a mental health strategy let's think long term about this let's create a good environment that's brilliant but the students that care deeply about this are often the ones that are either at crisis point themselves or are supporting students who are at that point and you need to do the proactive and the reactive in tandem for students to start feeling like their institutions are taking this seriously. Good, so that's about it for this week. Remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Search for The Wonky Show via iTunes or your favourite Android podcast directory. Or you can find the feed you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast. And if you fancy appearing as a guest on The Wonky Show, as Andy and Eve have done so expertly, do drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch. So thanks to Andy to Eve and of course to Debbie everyone at Team Wonky for making it happen behind the scenes and until next week stay healthy even on a budget quality is non-negotiable 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.